All right. Well, good morning. It's great to have you all here at the Medina East campus of Grace Church. I do just want to say real quick, too, just um, congratulations to uh, the parents and to the kids that, uh, that just got dedicated. It's one of our favorite things to see is to see families uh, that are just dedicated to, uh, to following Jesus and then to modeling that to the next generation. So we're just super excited for you. So thanks for, thanks for being here and thanks for doing that. And then also, let me just say that if you're a guest here at the Medina East campus, kind of like Colin said, if it's your first time here, welcome. We're so glad that you're able to be with us too. And let me say that if you're someone who's been coming to the Medina East Campus for the past month or so, about the past month, chances are good that we probably haven't had a chance to meet because I haven't been up here for a while. And uh, so allow me to introduce myself to you. My name is Tony. I am uh, the campus pastor here at the Medina East Campus. And I do just want to say that if we've never had a chance to personally meet, if you have a chance today, I would, I would love to just kind of get a chance to hear your story. So catch me in the cafe afterwards. I'll be hanging out. And I'd love to hear how you got connected here at Grace and maybe get a chance to get to know you a little bit. But thanks for being here. And I'm especially excited because today I'm actually starting a brand new series. And so we're in a new series that's going to be going for four weeks. Uh, This is a series that we're calling True and False. And so again, if you're a guest, I really think you came on an awesome weekend. And uh, the reason is because uh, we are starting a brand new conversation that we're going to be in for the next four weeks together. Here at Grace Church, one of the ways that we think about sermon series is we kind of think of them as one big conversation over the course of several weeks. And so the fact that you're here for week one, I just think that's awesome timing. And so if you are a person who's maybe trying to figure out if Grace Church is the church for you, or if you're someone who's maybe you know been out of church for a while and you're looking to get reconnected to a church, I would actually encourage you, in fact, I'd even uh, encourage you to do this, to maybe lock in for the next four weeks with us together. I think that'll give you a chance to hear the whole conversation. I think that also would give you a chance, hopefully, to get to know us a little bit and also a chance for us to get to know you because we'd really, really love to do that. But you might be thinking, well, what's this series about, True and False? And you probably saw the bumper and you're like, okay, so where are we going with this whole, with this whole conversation? And so what we're doing in this series is we're actually spending the entire four weeks looking at actually just one kind of passage of the Bible together. And the passage that we're going to be looking at is actually found in Matthew chapter 7. So I want to encourage you just right now, if you can, why don't you get your Bible and I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter chapter 7, because that's what we're going to be spending today, and also the duration of this entire series is going to be in Matthew 7. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and open up with me. If you did not bring a Bible with you, if you don't have a Bible app on your phone, uh, you can feel free just to grab one of the Bibles under the chairs. Page 788 is where you're going to find Matthew chapter 7. And let me also say, if you don't own a Bible, like if you don't physically have your own copy of the Bible, we'd love for you just to take one. You can just take one of ours home with you, uh, make that a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to have a Bible. So Matthew 7 is where we're going to go. And like I said, this whole series is going to be based out of this passage. And uh, here's what we're going to see. Uh, This passage that we're going to be looking at is actually, believe it or not, this whole series is actually based on a conclusion to a sermon. That might sound kind of weird to you. This whole series is based on a conclusion to a sermon. And the conclusion is, uh, is, is the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. It's called the Sermon on uh, the Mount. And uh, this is maybe the most provocative. It is maybe the most profound teaching that we see from Jesus in one spot in the Bible. It spans Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7. In fact, some of you might be part of the Medina East Campus family, and you might remember, we actually spent the last four sermon series that we've been in together working through 
the Sermon on the Mount. And so we've kind of covered this whole thing together and looked at just this profound but very provocative teaching that comes from Jesus of Nazareth. And so now in this series, we're going to be kind of looking at how does Jesus conclude his most famous words? How does he conclude his most famous teaching, his most famous sermon? And what you're going to see in this series, what I want to show you is that in this section, Jesus is actually going to turn the corner. And he's going to go from teaching and preaching, and now he's going to bring us to a place of decision. So in a lot of ways, what this series is all about is it's about, it's about decision. It's about what are you going to do, what are you going to do with the things that Jesus said? How are you going to interact with the things that Jesus taught, with who Jesus is and the vision of life that he puts forth? And so in a lot of ways, this series is really all about a decision point. It's about, it's about what are you going to do with Jesus and what are you going to do with what he taught? Now, what's interesting is the way that Jesus is going to do this is through a series of very shocking word pictures. In fact, that we're going to see in the series, he actually gives us four. And so we're going to see that Jesus is going to give us kind of, kind of this, 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 this decision point. He's going to show it to us first by talking about two roads. He's going to say there's two roads. He's going to say one is a broad road that leads to destruction. One is a narrow road that leads to life. He's going to give us the image of two teachers, or some translations talk about two different trees. And he's going to say that there are false teachers, or there's false prophets. And then he's going to say that there's true teachers, and there's true prophets. Jesus is going to say this. He's going to say that there's two kinds of disciples. There's only two kinds. He's going to say there are true disciples, there are true followers, and then he's going to say there are false followers. In fact, this passage is the one that Jesus famously says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a scary verse. We're actually gonna talk about that one a little bit later in this series. And then Jesus is gonna wrap it up by talking about two builders. He's gonna give us this imagery of two people who are building. One who's building on a true foundation that is solid and strong, and one who's building on a false foundation which is flimsy and doesn't last. And so he's gonna give us just these shocking word pictures. And Jesus is gonna tell us, he's gonna say, and as it relates to, Jesus is gonna say, as it relates to my teaching and as it relates to me, there are only two kinds. There are only two kinds of people. I think it's really fascinating. Um, I think that we oftentimes, uh, as, as humans, uh, we are oftentimes trying to categorize ourselves into very simple, usually overly simplistic categories. Uh, you can hear it sometimes the way that we talk. And so sometimes we'll say things like this. We'll say, there's only two kinds of people in this world. And then we'll follow it up with something. Only two kinds of people in this world. And sometimes we do this in serious ways, but a lot of times we do this in kind of overly simplistic, silly ways. I actually thought this was kind of funny. This past week, I was uh, on this website called boardpanda.com. Really interesting name for a website. And they have a a bunch of memes and a bunch of... um, bunch of different illustrations that were created that are around this, around this theme. There's only two kinds of people. So I thought maybe I'd show you a couple of them, and I, this kind of made me chuckle a little bit. So I thought I'd show you a couple and then ask you if you would identify. Which person are you? Okay, so only two kinds of people in this world. So here's one of the images that came up here. All right, so, so obviously person one. So let me ask you, how many of you in this room are person one? You're this person right here. You get up the first time your alarm goes off. Okay, how many of you are this person over here? Takes multiple times. All right, hey, we're happy you made it to church. I'm just saying, it's awesome that you made it here. Uh, only two kinds of people, right? So we all kind of identify with this. This, by the way, I think a lot of us know this. This is the source of major marital conflict right here. So that's a, that's a thing. How about this one? Two kinds of people in this world, all right? So let me ask you, how many of you fit in this category? You just don't care about the notification. Okay, how many of you are over here? You're like, there's nothing that brings more peace to my heart than a cleaned out zero inbox. So that's, that's good. 
And of course, this last one, I have to do it. It's the classic argument, but I'm going to put it up there anyway. Here you go. How about this one right here? Only two kinds of people in this world. Which way does toilet paper go? Which way do you put it? So let me ask you guys this question. I, I'm just going to ask it once. Who is in this category right here? Just put your hands up. All right, listen. I'm, I'm just, I'm being serious. Look, we love you. We do. But I'm just going to say, you have to come find me after service because I don't understand you. Like, I do not get the logic behind that. So come explain it to me. I'm, I'm open to hear it. So anyway, so like I said, we, we will do this in silly ways. We'll do this in funny ways. There's only two kinds of people. And I think oftentimes when we do that, we realize that we're being overly simplistic because we as humans are more nuanced than that, right? We don't, we're too nuanced to fit into the ni- nice, clean categories that we tend to put ourselves in. But what I want you to see here is that Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, is actually coming and he's saying, no, there are only two kinds. There's only two kinds. Jesus is going to come and he's going to speak with such polarizing, definitive language that I think for many of us, it comes across as very shocking. And I think it's intended to. I think it's intended to because I think that Jesus is trying to drive us to a decision point. And so because of that, what we're going to do in this series is we're going to spend a week talking about each one of these. We're going to spend a week just thinking through what does Jesus mean when he says these things? And how are we to interact? And what is the decision? And what is the invitation that he's offering us through it? So here's where we're going to start this week. We're going to start by talking about the first part. We're only going to look at two verses today. We're going to talk about these two roads. And so as Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount, here's what he begins by saying. He says this. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And so these are Jesus' words. And again, I think it's pretty clear if you read this, this passage is pretty jarring. It's pretty jarring because it's so polarizing. See, what Jesus is going to say is he's going to say in this life, he's going to say there are only two roads, and there are only two destinations. There's only two roads, and there's only two destinations. This is what Jesus is teaching us. There's only two roads, and there's only two destinations. And again, and again, I think that this is so shocking because what Jesus is saying is he's saying that with all of the myriad of complexities and components that make each one of us so different from each other, Jesus is going to say that in this world and in this room, that every single one of us is on only one road, one of two roads, and that we are headed to only one of two destinations as we're journeying on that road. Again, very shocking what Jesus is going to say here. And so because of that, what I want to do is I just want to spend some time thinking about what does he mean by two roads, and what does he mean by two destinations? So let's start by thinking about the two roads that Jesus talks about. Obviously, the two roads that he speaks of, one, are very, very different. Uh, One, he's going to say, is categorized by being broad and wide, and the other one is small and narrow. So what's he speaking about there? Well, first off, he talks about the wide and the broad road. He says, many people are on this road. And uh, it's interesting, some of you might have different translations here. And if you have a different translation of the Bible, it might say, wide is the, wide is the gate. And then it'll say, easy is the road that leads to destruction. Uh, the word that's used there for wide or for broad is actually a word that literally means spacious and roomy. That's the, actually what the original word means, is it means spacious and roomy. So what's he talking about? Well, I, think, I think here's the idea. I think Jesus is saying that on the road to life, on this road of life that we are on, on this journey, this is the path that's the one that's the most natural. It's the one that's most intuitive. It is the one that is the most obvious. It is the easiest. It is the most well-worn path. It's the one of least resistance in the life that we live. Um, 
I actually thought, just to go with Jesus's metaphor, I couldn't help but think of this. Um, one of the things my family likes to do every fall, so now it's getting to be towards the fall, it's September now, is we like to do the fall hiking spree. Uh, anyone else in the room do the fall hiking spree or ever done the fall hiking? There's only a few of us. So th- this, uh, this, this is a really cool thing that, that happens in the Metro Park system here, is uh, they basically have this, you know, it's a, it's a hiking spree in the fall, and you, you have to do eight trails over the course of like three months, and after you do it, you get this little shield that you can put on a walking stick. And so our family's been doing this for years. We really like it. But I'll tell you one of the reasons we like it so much. Uh, The reason we like it is because it's very easy. It's very, very easy. In fact, I'll just show you a picture. This is actually a picture of one of the trails that we go on. And and we like it because we have four kids. And uh, my youngest is three years old and my oldest is 12. And so we like going on these trails. We we actually specifically pick the ones that are the easiest. And, And the reason is because it's just, you know, it's low resistance with kids. You don't have to think about too much. And I love that the Metro Park system, they do such an awesome job maintaining these trails. They are wide, they are broad, they are spacious, they are obstacle free for the most part. If there's a river, there's a bridge going over it. Like the whole thing is set up for you. And what's awesome about this is when we hike, we go for a short distance with our family and we don't really have to think very much. You just kind of intuitively know what to do. All you have to do is just follow the trail. You don't have to navigate much. You don't have to maneuver much. You just follow the trail that literally people have been following for a hundred years. It is a well-worn trail that you follow. It's a great trail for a family. It's very leisurely. Now you compare that with a few weeks ago, I took my two oldest boys, not the little ones, I took my two oldest boys on the Appalachian Trail. And I don't know if you guys have ever been on the AT before, but we went down to this spot in Virginia. It's the highest mountain in Virginia. And we hiked on the trail. And that trail, let me show you a couple pictures. Some of the parts look like this. This is actually part of the trail. And you have to maneuver your way down the rocks. Part of the trail looked like this. These are actually my boys on top of a cliff. I'm a good parent, I swear. So that was a thing that we did. But I'm telling you, this trail, there were some parts that were so technical and there were some parts that were so narrow that you couldn't even talk to the person next to you. You couldn't even have a person next to you because it required all of your attention and all of your thought because you wanted to get down. Now, here's what Jesus is saying, just to go with his his illustration. He says there is a broad path. There is an easy path. There is a well-worn path is what he's talking about. And he says that's a path that leads to, it's a path that leads to destruction. Some of you might be saying, what are some of the characteristics of the broad path? Well, I actually jotted down some thoughts, and I thought maybe I'd just kind of read some of my thoughts to you on this one. I think in the context of the scripture, in the context of what Jesus has taught previous and also in addition to this, here's what I think. I think the broad path is the path in life that's relatively effortless to follow. I think that's what it is. I think the broad path is the one that's the most well-worn. It's the most popular. It's the most obvious at your school, at your work, in our life. It simply requires doing what everybody else is doing. Just kind of go with the flow. I think in our society, the well-worn path is the obvious sequence of events of life. You just do what everyone else does. And so you go to school. And then after you graduate, you find the best paying job that you can find. And then you hopefully find someone to settle down with. Maybe you get married. Maybe you have kids. You probably get a pet. Hopefully a dog. Hopefully not a cat. Right? <laughs> You earn a bunch of money, and then you keep upgrading your house over and over again until eventually you retire. And then when you ask someone why, why did you take that path? We say, well, that's just because that's what everybody does. It's the well-worn path. Here's what I think the broad path is. I think the broad path is following the crowd of culture. 
I think the broad path is this. I think the broad path is the road that you're born on. It's the road that you're born on. It's the same path that your family took. It's adopting the same attitudes and priorities that you had when you grew up. It's making the same relationship decisions that your mom made. It's, it's, it's adopting the same habits that your father had. I think it's following the crowd of our culture. It's the well-worn path of adopting the same priorities and views that our culture accepts. If the, culture, if the cultural consensus says that it's right, then it must be right. And if the cultural consensus says that it's wrong, then it must be wrong. And listen, I, I wanted to say, I, I'm not saying that you know, following in the footsteps of your parents is necessarily a bad thing, not necessarily. But what I'm saying is that oftentimes we make these decisions and they're unchallenged and they just happen automatically. We just kind of go with the flow. Here's another observation I want to make about the broad path as well. I think this, I think with the broad gate and with the broad road, I think it's telling us that anything fits through it. It's anything goes, right? This path does not require that you need to change anything or that you need to remove anything or that you need to leave anything behind to move forward. There's plenty of room on this path for all kinds of opinions and there's plenty of room for moral flexibility, right? I think that this is a trail that's marked by moral relativism. If this trail had a slogan, I think it would be, you do you, boo-boo. That would be it, right? Just whatever you think goes. There's no boundaries of thought or action. I think people on this road follow their own desires and their opinions and their own efforts. And you, you contrast this, this broad road that Jesus is giving us with the second one that he speaks of, which is the narrow road. Jesus says this, he says, small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only if you find it. Now, what's he talking about here? I think it's kind of interesting. Some of you, again, have different translations and it might say, uh, it might say hard is the road. It might say hard. The word there that's used for narrow uh, or tight or for small is actually this word uh, that literally means, what it literally means is it means constrained. It means to be constricted or to be limited is actually the word that's used. I thought this was really cool. This might be kind of nerdy to some of you, but I thought this was cool. Uh, when I was studying the word that was used for narrow, I actually found another first century ancient text that used the very same word. It's not the Bible, but it's a, it's a historical text that was used in the first century. And I actually want to show it to you. It actually is a, a historical document that was talking about this tomb. So this is actually called the tomb of King Cyrus. It was in, he was an ancient Babylonian king. You can actually go visit this today. But one uh, first century historical writer actually wrote about this. Now, I don't know if you can see, but in this uh, tomb, there's actually a very small, it looks like a window up here, but it's actually not a window. It's the entrance to the tomb. And so one historical writer by the name of Arian of Nicodemia back in the first century, this is what he said. He said, this tomb included an access door that was so narrow, okay, the word narrow there is the exact same Greek word that Jesus uses in the New Testament. He says, it's so narrow that only one man at a time and a little one at that could manage with great difficulty, painfully, to squeeze himself through. So th today, if you go visit this, you'll see that even today, after 2,000 years of erosion, this thing is only 30 inches wide. It's all the wider it is. And so to get through this entrance, what, what's the point? The point is it's a tight squeeze. And so what is Jesus talking about here? Well, I think what Jesus is saying about the narrow road is this, is that in order to enter it, in order to follow him, I think what he's saying is we have to be willing to empty ourselves and we have to be willing to lower ourselves. You know, this is actually very uh, consistent with what Jesus teaches all throughout the Bible. You know, I think about in places like Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said this, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, that is whoever wants to follow me, whoever wants to be my student, has to deny themselves. 
and to be willing to take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You see what Jesus says? He says, if you want to be my disciple, it requires something. What does it require? He says, it requires that you unload your life. It requires that you have to be willing to deny certain things about yourself. It's going to feel narrow in certain spots. And so when Jesus says this, when he says that there's a narrow road, uh, what are the characteristics of that, that kind of road? Well, I actually wrote down some thoughts on this too. Here's what I wrote about the narrow road. The narrow road, I believe, involves emptying yourself and lowering yourself. To enter this road, you have to be willing to leave certain things behind that don't fit. Things like lifestyle choices. I think things like ambitions, some ambitions. I think things like personal opinions, maybe even preferences if necessary. I think the narrow road involves a recognition that we are all born believing that we are the most competent to run our own lives. And I think entering the narrow gate requires an act of the will to surrender that control to Jesus. I think Jesus is being very honest. I think he's being very upfront with us and he's telling us that if we follow him and if we give our life to him, that at times it's going to feel confining. That at times the the way of Jesus is gonna feel constricting and it's gonna feel limiting. It's not always gonna be easy. And it's not definitely not always gonna be popular. Let me tell you another aspect I think about the narrow road as well. I think part of what it means when Jesus says that we're to enter through the narrow gate is it means that each one of us has to enter individually. You cannot enter as a group. You have to enter personally. You cannot enter simply through your family affiliation. You cannot enter simply through your church affiliation. It's a personal decision. It always boils down to that. It is one at a time. I think Jesus is always trying to drive us to the personal level. I don't know if you guys ever noticed this, but if you've ever read through the Gospels, Jesus has this uncanny ability. I mean, this uncanny ability to take things when he's in a conversation with someone all the way down to the most personal level. He takes things from the general and he drives it down to always leading to the most personal issues that are in a person's heart. I think one of the, one of the best places you see this is in a place in Luke chapter 18. And uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, it's actually a pretty famous story about a guy that is interacting with Jesus. We don't know his name. All we know is that he's called the rich young ruler. And so here's what we know about him. We know he had it all. He was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. He had wealth, he had youth, he had power, and all those things. He came to Jesus and he wanted to talk to Jesus and he wanted to interact with him about the commandments. He had a theological dialogue with Jesus. And Jesus interacts with him and he talks with him. But very quickly, Jesus turns the conversation from the general to the personal. And Jesus looks at him and he says, yeah, I see, you know a lot about the Bible. I see that you're a very well-established person. He says, but there's one thing that you lack. He says, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. What's Jesus doing? He's driving all the way down to the most personal aspect of this man's heart. Jesus does the same thing. Uh, Some of you might remember this incredible story in John chapter four. Jesus is talking to a woman at the well, Samaritan woman. And, uh, And so she wants to talk about religion. So she says, I perceive that you must be like a rabbi or something. And she says, you know, you're, you're Jewish, so that means you worship in the temple. She said, I'm a Samaritan, that means we worship on the mountain. She says, let's talk about our religious differences. And Jesus very quickly changes the topic. And he says to her, he says, hey, uh, where's your husband? And she don't want to talk about that. She wants to talk about religion. She don't want to talk about that. And, Jesus, and she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right about that. He says, you don't have a husband. She says, you've had five. You have five failed marriages, and the man that you're with right now is not your husband. Now, what's Jesus doing? Is he just picking on people? Is that what he's doing? Is he just trying to point out their flaws and their mistakes? And is that what he's doing? No, 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 no. I think what Jesus is doing is this, is he's always taking it to the personal, to the personal level because to enter the narrow gate, it's something that happens on only the deepest and the most personal 
levels. You do not enter into the kingdom. You do not follow Jesus simply through religious affiliation, simply through a family dynamic that you grew up with. It is a personal choice. It is a personal interaction between you and with Jesus. And so he's gonna say, Jesus is gonna say there's two roads. He's gonna say there's two roads. One is broad, one is narrow. One is easy and one is hard. And so that, that, I think that causes us to ask a very logical question. It's a very logical question. Why in the world would you deliberately choose the more challenging path? Why would you do that? And I think the reason is very clear. It's because there's also two destinations. There's two destinations. And you can see very clearly in the text, what are they? He says, the broad road leads to destruction. He says, but the narrow road, the, narrow, the, the small gate and the narrow road leads to life and only if you find it. One leads to destruction, Jesus says. He says the other one leads to life. Now, I think this is where it's very clear that Jesus' message is shockingly exclusive. Jesus' words here are maybe even for some of us here and definitely for our culture, they are offensively exclusive. But here's what I want you to hear me say, that as challenging as this might seem to us and as polarizing and as exclusive as these words are, I want you to understand that the Bible reinforces, that the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Scripture reinforce this exclusivity over and over again. And so let me just, let me just show you a few different places where you see this radically exclusive message. Jesus says this in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Very famous, but radically exclusive words from Jesus. He claims that he is exclusively the way that you can have a right relationship with God. How about John chapter 10, verse nine? Jesus says this. He just flat out says it. He says, I'm the gate. We talk about a narrow gate. What are we talking about? He says, that's me. I'm the narrow gate. Everyone who enters through me will be saved. Jesus just said that he is the entry point, that he is the only entry point to the way of salvation. How about this one? Peter said this in Acts 4. He said, there's no other name under heaven that's given to men by which, by which we must be saved. So talking about the name of Jesus. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2. He says, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. Now, what are all of these guys talking about? What is Jesus and Peter and Paul, what are they all talking about here? They are reinforcing the same idea. There's a narrow gate. There's a narrow path. There are only two paths. That's it. And they lead to two different destinations. One is to life and one is to destruction. And this is, I'm just saying, this is something that is so clear in scripture that even though it's not popular, a, a genuine, authentic Bible reader cannot, cannot misunderstand this. They can only ignore this. That's it. And listen, I think, I think here's the thing. I think we all understand this. This maybe is probably one of the most challenging aspects of Christianity to our culture today. The teaching of Jesus is on a, is on a crash course collision with what our culture would say. Our culture would give us a very different picture. Our culture would say, no, there's not two paths and there's not two destinations. Our culture would say, there are many paths. There are a thousand different paths. And all of them are equally viable and all of them lead to life and they lead to fulfillment. As long as it's something that works for you, then that's wonderful. But Jesus would look and he would give us a very different picture. And Jesus would say, no, there's two, there's two. And he says there's two paths and there's two destinations. It's this exclusive teaching that he gives us. And like I said, this is a teaching that really rubs in the face of our culture. Uh, C.S. Lewis, um, uh, almost 100 years ago, uh, he actually, I think he anticipated that this would create such a tension in our culture. He actually said this almost 100 years ago, and I think his words ring true even today. He said this in his book, Miracles. He said, you know, you speak about beauty, truth, and goodness, 
Or you speak about a God who's simply the indwelling principle of these three. Speak about a great spiritual force pervading all things, a common mind of which we're all parts, a pool of generalized spirituality to which we all flow, and you'll command friendly interest. He's right. But then he goes on and he says this, but the temperature drops as soon as you mention a God who has purposes and performs particular actions, who does one thing and not another, a concrete, choosing, commanding, prohibiting God with a determinate character, people then become embarrassed or they become angry. I think he's right about that. I think he hit the nail on the head. That once you start talking about God as a force, when you talk about God as an idea, everyone's okay with that. But the moment you talk about a God who says there is one or one of two ways, all of a sudden the temperature changes in the room. I think we see that to be true. But here's what I want you to consider. I think it's possible that maybe the reason that Jesus uses such strong words is not because he's trying to be harsh and it's not because he's close-minded. I think the reason Jesus uses such strong words is because he loves us and because he wants something for us. I don't think it's that he wants something from us. I think it's that he wants something for us. I just want you to think about this with me for a minute. When Jesus says, when he says, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and he says, narrow is the road that leads to life, Jesus does not say, and I like it that way. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, and I want it to be that way. No, look what Jesus says here. He says, so enter through the narrow gate. See, this is an invitation. Jesus is saying, this is the way it is. And everyone has a choice. Everyone has a choice. And most people are going to choose to go the broad and easy way. But he says, but that's not my heart for you. What I want for you, what Jesus wants for us, is he wants life. He wants life. I'll tell you something else that I, uh, that I think is so fascinating about this passage that I think is often missed, and, uh, and it's this. I think sometimes when we read this passage, uh, it is very easy for us to conclude when we read this that when it says that there's a broad path that leads to destruction, there's a small gate that leads, leads to life, I think it's easy for us to quickly conclude that this is simply talking about where a person goes after they die. I think it's easy for us to think that what this is about is where a person is going to spend eternity, whether that's going to be in heaven or in hell. And let me just say, I just wanna say this real quick. I think that, that, that I wanna affirm that yes, I think in one sense that is what this passage is talking about. I think this passage is saying that these paths have an ultimate destination. They have an eternal destination. I think that that's true. However, I also want you to hear me say this. I think that to simply understand it that way it's actually to miss all of what Jesus is saying here. See, see, I think it's fascinating. When the Bible talks about the idea of life and it talks about the idea of death or destruction, those terms, those terms in the Bible are a lot more dynamic than we tend to make them. They're very, very dynamic. Uh, let me see if I can explain it to you this way. I want you to notice the language Jesus uses here. He says, with both of these roads, he's gonna say that there's a gate, there's a gate, there's a road, or there's a path, and then he's gonna say, and there's a destination, there's an end point to it all, right? In other words, that's to say this, there's a decision. In this life, there's a decision. And that decision is followed up by a journey. And that journey ultimately and over time, gradually and increasingly is going to lead to a certain destination. This is the language that Jesus used. And so in many ways, life and death, yes, they are ultimate destinations, but they are also increasingly present realities in the life of a person who follows after those two different paths. Let's see if I can explain it this way. That might sound kind of abstract. So the word that's used here for life, it's a really interesting word. It is actually this Greek word right here. It's the Greek word zoe. It's most often translated as eternal life in the Bible. Now here's what I think is so fascinating. A lot of times when we think of eternal life, when we hear that, 
what we tend to think of is we tend to think of the duration of life. So we think of heaven, right? Life forever, life that goes on and on. And that's true, but it's actually not complete because the word zoe actually means more than, mean, more than the duration of life. It's referring to the quality of life. It's referring to the kind of life that God intends for you to have. It's the heavenly kind of life. It's life as if God, it's the life that God has intended. It's life at its best. And here's what I believe. I think what Jesus is saying is the more and more that we follow him and the more and more that we surrender ourselves to him day in and day out, we experience the fullness of life increasingly, increasingly every day in this life now. Let's see if I can put it to you this way. I think part of what Jesus is saying is that my daily decisions, our daily decisions to follow Jesus today will increase the fullness of life that we experience, not just later, but right here and right now. That as we follow him, we're going to experience this in those different ways. I think what Jesus is saying is this. I think what he's saying is that as I pursue his vision for life, as I surrender myself to Jesus's vision for sexuality, Jesus's vision for marriage, Jesus's vision for how I interact with my enemies, as I surrender my life to, to, to how Jesus wants me to interact with, with issues of money and finances and worry and those kind of things, I think that yes, at first, it's gonna feel limiting. That yes, at first, it's gonna require that I deny myself. That yes, it's gonna feel constraining, but ultimately and over time and increasingly, it's gonna bring greater life and greater freedom to me. Maybe a good illustration to think about it would be this. If, um, if you wanted to make the decision that you wanted to be a great athlete, if, that, if you said, I want to be a great athlete, which I know for me, that ship has sailed a long time ago. But if, if, I decided, if you decided to do that at a very young age, uh, it would involve at least three things, at least three. First off, it would involve a decision. You would have to make a choice. You would have to, you would have to narrow all of your options and say, this is what I'm going to focus on. I want to be a great athlete. But once you've made that decision, that's not enough. Now that's going to that's gonna catapult you onto a journey. And what's that journey? Well, that journey is going to be a journey of narrowness. And what does that journey include? Well, it means you're going to have to say no to a whole bunch of things. You're going to have to say no to a bunch of opportunities. It means you're going to have to say yes to a whole bunch of other things. So you're going to have to say yes to training. You have to say yes to a diet. You're going to have to say yes to all kinds of things to make yourself a better athlete. And of course, that's going to lead to an ultimate destination. And the goal, the destination, is that you want to be a great athlete. But here's what I think all of us know. When you decide to be a great athlete, it's not like one day all of a sudden you wake up and you're a great athlete. It happens gradually. It happens over time. And it happens increasingly. And here's what I think Jesus is trying to say. I think what Jesus is saying is if you want, if you want Zoe life, if you want the fullest life that God desires for you, that he's created for you, I think he says, listen, it involves three things. First, it involves a decision. And that decision, he says, is to surrender your life to me. I am the gate. And when you make that decision, you are narrowing your options. And you're saying, Jesus, I am coming to you. I'm coming to you as the creator. I am renouncing all other worldviews, all other visions for life and for humanity. And I'm subjecting myself to you. It's that decision. It starts there. But that, of course, involves a journey. And what is the journey? The journey is gradually, not totally, but gradually over time that I'm continuing to surrender my life to Jesus every single day, not perfectly, but increasingly. I think what the Bible is saying is that over time, as you do that, that leads more and more into the fullness of life that God desires for you. In other words, here's, I think, what what Jesus is saying. I think he's saying this. If you want to find the life that God desires, it's only found in one place, just one. It's found in Jesus Christ. And it's found in surrendering your life to him. And that's not always easy. 
Sometimes that's restricting and restraining and it feels hard, but it leads to life. And not just life tomorrow, but even life in the here and now that God desires for us. Listen, here, here's what I think. I think this whole conversation, if I was to boil it down, talk about these two paths, I think it actually boils down to one thing. I really do. I think it boils down to one thing. And it's not our favorite word for sure. But I think it boils down to this. I actually think it boils down to authority. I know, not our favorite word, authority. I think it's all this. It's who has the authority to lead my life? Who has the authority to call the shots? I actually love the way that when Jesus is finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount, I love the reaction of the people. The Bible says when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught like one who had authority and not like their teachers of the law. The Bible says that the crowds were amazed at Jesus's authority. And you know what I think? I think this is what it really boils down to, is who has the authority in my life? Do I, as it relates to Jesus's teaching, as it relates to his vision for life, do I stand as the authority over him? Do I stand with skepticism and selectively pick and choose the parts that I like about what Jesus said? Or do I stand under him? And do I allow him to define and direct my life, to lead and to guide me? I think that's what it ultimately boils down to. So with that in mind, with that in mind, I want to ask the band to come up. And as the band makes their way up here and they kind of settle in, I actually just want to end our time with a couple of just quick questions that I want you to process through. Now, obviously, we have a lot more that we're going to say in this sermon series together. I'd encourage you to come back for that. But let me just, let me just close out with a couple of questions. So first off, let me just talk to the person in the room who maybe is a follower of Jesus. So I understand that's not everybody, but there are many of us who are here today who would say that we are people who have given our lives and dedicated our lives to following Christ. If that's the, if that's the case, I just want to ask you, in light of what we just learned, to consider this question. Will we, for those of us who follow Jesus, will we trust Jesus not only for eternal life later, not just for heaven, but will we also trust him with our daily life here and now today? This is a really important question. You know, it's easy for us to read this passage and say, I already gave my life to Jesus. I'm a Christian. That means that I'm on the path to life. I got it. I'm good. I got my fire insurance that'll kick in after I die, and I'm all set. And I just want to tell you, I think that's a misunderstanding of the text. I think that's a misunderstanding. I think here's the point. Jesus has always taken things to the personal level, right? He looks at the rich young ruler, and he says, your money, that's the thing that's keeping you from a full relationship with me. He looks at the woman at the well, he, she said, he says, your relationships, you're looking, you're looking to men to find your identity. I'm inviting you to let that go and to follow me. Let me just ask you, if Jesus Christ were in this room right now, which I actually believe by the power of his Holy Spirit he is, what would be the thing that he would look at you and say that? That's the thing that's keeping you. That's the thing that you're holding back. That's the thing that you need to leave behind. And I just want to encourage you. I believe that maybe today's teaching is an invitation for you to leave it behind. Yes, it might feel limiting. Yes, it might feel constraining. Yes, it might require that you need to deny yourself to do that. But I believe that what's on offer to you is life to the fullest. And so what's keeping you back? I'd encourage you to talk to God about that. And maybe for some of you in this room, you're, you're someone who's investigating Jesus. You know, maybe, maybe for you, you would say that you're not a Christian. You're still trying to figure it out. Maybe you're invited by somebody. And if that's you, I, I do just want to say this. We say this all the time, but I genuinely mean it from the bottom of my heart. If you're someone who's investigating Jesus, we are so honored. We count it such a privilege that you would let us be part of that investigation. You could do anything you want with your time. And the fact that you'd let us speak into that, I think is just awesome. 
But can I just ask you to consider this? If you're a person who would say, I have not given Jesus the authority of my life, I have not surrendered that to him, I just want you to, to consider these two questions. That's it. I just think, I think it's important that you, you identify this. Here's the, the first question I ask you. Who does have the authority of your life? Okay, so if Jesus doesn't, who does? Who does have the authority? Maybe for you, you would say, it's me. I have the authority. I call the shots. I determine what's best for me, and that's how my life works. Or maybe for you, if you're being really honest, you would say the culture is really calling the shots. So where do I get my understanding of morality, and where do I get my understanding of what's right and wrong and the best way to live? Honestly, I don't even really know. I'm just kind of going with the flow. Or maybe for you, if you're being really honest, maybe you would say it's your parents or it's your family. And maybe your parents aren't even alive anymore, but you still feel the pressure of their voice telling you that you need to do a certain thing or act a certain way. And here's the follow-up question. So whatever that might be, I really want you to think about that. Who has the authority in your life? And then here, here's the follow-up question that I just, wanna, I just want you to consider. Are they qualified for that job description? Whoever it is that's leading your life, what are the qualifications and credentials that they have to make those authoritative calls and what actually is the best for you. And, and you might be saying, well, how do you know that Jesus is a, has the authority and has the credentials? And I would encourage you just to consider these two things. If Jesus truly died for us, I think that we might have life. I think that that, that, that shows us his great love for us. And if Jesus rose from the dead, if Jesus Christ literally historically rose from the dead. I think that uniquely qualifies him to talk about matters of life and death. I think he's probably someone who you might want to lean on, on where to find life and where to find it everlasting. So maybe for you, even now, you feel God is calling you. And maybe for you, you're at a place where you realize, man, I've been calling the shots in my life and it has not led to greater life. In fact, maybe for you, you would say, I've been calling the shots and it's, left only, it's only left me hungry for more and for more. And it's not satiating and it's not satisfying the deepest parts of my soul. And I would say, look to Jesus because in him is life. Yeah, it's narrow. Yeah, it's gonna feel limiting. Yeah, it's gonna be hard. Jesus is honest about that, but it leads to life and life to the fullest. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we just wanna say thank you for your words to us this morning. God, thank you that you love us enough that you'll speak truth. I feel like, I feel like we live in a society of niceties where, where um, what we hear more often than not is that whatever we think is good is good, but I love that you're loving enough to tell us that that's not always the case. It's not always the case. And so Jesus, I pray that in these next moments as we worship and sing, would you just interact with our hearts? Would you speak to us? Would you allow us to open our hearts to you to receive what you might need to tell us? If there's something we need to leave behind, God, help us, give us the courage and strength to do it. And Lord, maybe for some of us, we just need to turn to you. We just need to surrender our lives to your authority. Allow you, Lord, just to, 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 to take control. And so I pray that you'd help us to do that in these next moments. We love you. Let's pray these things in Christ's name.